Hello, hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to Letters from a Contrarian. Uh, this week I have Dr. Matt Strauss with me. He is a critical care physician and a professor at uh, Queen's University. Um, so before I actually go ahead and start the conversation, I just wanted to give you a table of contents and an explanation of John Rawls. So this will take about... Um, three minutes. So if you skip ahead by four, three or four minutes, then you can get straight to the convo. Um, so for the first, so starting from the five minute mark, we talk about uh, Dr. Strauss's views of COVID-19, of lockdowns and of the media, and how they are framing the consensus, the medical consensus. Um, at around the 25 minute mark, we talk about how the government should be dealing with COVID-19 and how people should be dealing with it. Uh, we talk about masks and risks and externalities. Uh, at the 45-minute mark, we talk about governments and trust, and we talk about Chernobyl and the Soviet Union and China and Canada's government. At the 55-minute mark, we talk about how to live a meaningful life and how it can immunize you from turning your life into something absolutely terrible and how you can figure out how to live a meaningful life. Um, at the hour and 15 minute mark, we talk about philosophers. And at the hour and 20 minute mark, we talk about uh, Dr. Strauss's PhD work and what reality is like as a doctor in Canada and where the system can be improved. Um, so I also wanted to briefly discuss John Rawls, um, or at least give you a summary of his argument. Um, he died in 2002, unfortunately, but he revivified this, the field of political philosophy after it had basically been dormant uh, since John Stuart Mill, who died 100 years earlier, or who had written 150 years earlier. Uh, John Rawls, this is happening, he published A Theory of Justice in 1971, and he defended the welfare state in that work. And this is after World War II, when we start to see the emergence of the welfare state and um, government spending on its citizens. And here's how his argument goes. Basically, if you didn't know who your family would be, if you didn't know how much money your family would have, and you haven't been born yet, um, if you don't know any of that, what opportunities they can afford to you, what your IQ would be, um, how well you will eat during the first five years of your life, um, whether your parents are abusive or not, so on and so forth. Um, what society or what country would you like to have set up for you such that you would be maximally happy? Keep in mind that you don't know which society, which person in that society you would end up as, but you do have the choice to pick which society you are born into. Um, and so now what John Rawls calls this is the veil of ignorance. You don't know which social situation you're going to be born into. Um, he argues that a rational person, a self-interested person, someone who wants to maximize their happiness, 
would choose to be born not in North Korea, an egalitarian place where all outcomes are equal. Um, a rational person would not choose to be born into the United States or, or Mexico, where if you're poor, you're really poor, but if you're rich, you can really be rich. He argues that you would probably want to live in a state like Denmark or Sweden or Norway, where you can make it big, um, but if you don't, if you're unlucky and you're born to poor parents or if you have a learning disability, so on and so forth, that you won't live a miserable life. You'll actually still have a good life. And that's the best way to set up your society, therefore, because you don't have any choice over those founding conditions of your life. And so it's not fair um, or it's at least less fair to set up your society such that the bottom is taken care of, but the top you don't need to worry about. So you can have really rich people um, as long as the poorest of the poor are taken care of. Um, so that's what John Rawls thinks, and I hope that this quick summary um, gives you a bit of context to understand when we talk about him later on in this episode. Other than that, you can find Dr. Strauss on Twitter by, um, well, his his um, handle is Strauss, S-T-R-A-U-S-S underscore Matt. So you can follow him on Twitter and reach out to him there. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode. I guess we should start with me asking you uh, who you are. I know you're a doctor, but what specific type of medicine do you practice and who do you take care of? Uh, okay, so for the last, my name is Matt Strauss. For the last seven years, I've been practicing critical care medicine. That's my specialty. Um, it's, so it's life support um, is really what makes something critical care. Uh, I also practice internal medicine, which is... Uh, so critical care is a subspecialty of internal medicine, as are cardiology and nephrology and gastroenterology. So internal medicine is sick elderly folks, uh, often in the hospital. So I don't do obstetrics, I don't do pediatrics. Um, the the internists from film or television that people might know are House MD and uh, JD from Scrubs. He's an internist as well. So nobody knows okay. the word uh, until until I use those shows as a reference point. Right, got you. So you're probably You've probably met many COVID patients in your field of work. Well, I wouldn't say many. Um, and this is one of the things that I've been writing and tweeting about. I'm just letting my dog in. Um, in, the, in the quote unquote first wave at uh, one of the ICUs that I work at, uh, I think I had seven patients uh, with COVID who required mechanical ventilation. That's over the last nine months. And I haven't seen any COVID patients in the last six months. So. One can say that that's because the, um, uh, because the public health measures have been a success, and to some measure, they have. Sorry, I have a very whiny dog. He needed a treat. Um, but what, what was so, I guess, upsetting or counterintuitive to me was that, although I'd only seen seven COVID-positive patients in nine months, uh, almost every day that I go to work, I see somebody who has had some kind of bad health outcome uh, 
as a result of lockdowns or anxiety or uh, uh, something to do with the pandemic that is not the virus itself. And how many people are in the city which you practice in? So I practice in uh, a few cities. Uh, and I say that so that, um, so I guess, to keep confidential any any particular um, scenarios I might describe to you. Sure. Uh, but generally, I work in communities uh, with populations of like 100,000 to, to 500,000. Okay. Uh, well, I should probably ask you this question before all, but what's your most contrarian opinion? So I listened to your podcast with Eddie Lang and I heard that you said that. I I think the, the first thing I would say is... I, I, as far as my opinions on COVID go, I'm not sure that I'm contrarian at all. Um, there's there's obviously um, an overwhelming opinion in media and among the doctors who uh, find their way on on the, uh, CBC's The National. Uh, but in terms of the doctors and nurses that I work with, a, a somewhat more um, balanced view is actually very common. So... My most contrarian opinion, uh, you're going to get me in trouble. I, as far as the pandemic's concerned, I will say that I, I don't, I, so I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe in alternative medicines generally. Like I'm a critic of uh, acupuncture and chiropractic and homeopathy. Uh, I, I don't believe that there was anything intentional about how COVID-19 descended on the world. I also, this is the contrarian part. I don't believe that it is wholly a coincidence that China's only BHL4 virology lab is in Wuhan and that that virology lab was just coincidentally set, uh, studying coronaviruses in bats before this all happened. Uh, I'm not even sure if that's an opinion. It's not a belief. It's kind of like a speculation. I was just going to say, you don't have to get into that much trouble. I was just expecting you to say that lockdowns are, you don't think that. Oh, but that's not a contrarian opinion at all. In my, in, in my view, like most of the doctors and nurses that I work with think that, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a downside to lockdowns. Okay. And from my understanding of your position, that downside is that, um, you know, there are unintended consequences, which hopefully don't outnumber the number of deaths um, that come from COVID. So for example, um, suicides and overdoses and people who are dying from starvation, um, stuff like that, um, as a result of lockdowns being imposed. Uh, I, I missed the, the first part of the framing of the question, but yeah, I think there's a lot of downsides to lockdowns. Um, some of them can be counted in lives uh, in terms of suicide and overdose. In missed cancer screenings, uh, vaccination among children is going down. I believe uh, malnutrition among children in the third world is slated to double this year. Uh, so that's the lives part. But then in terms of the human suffering part, um, elders who are socially isolated, young folks who've had their employment uh, opportunities truncated or, or had to give up whatever education path they were on, or people who were trying really hard at a career, maybe something in the arts, like maybe they were, maybe their band was about to blow up, maybe their stand-up comedy career was just getting big, and now that's it's all taken from them. Uh, from a like utilitarian point of view, just to make the math easy, imagine we all live a hundred years. Uh, what percent of your life would be worth giving up to make sure you don't get a a, a virus with a mortality rate of zero point three percent? 
I would say a third of a year, just mathematically. And we've already given up three times more than that. So I, I think, I think the point of human life is not to spend as much time being alive as possible is to do the things that we think are meaningful with the time that we have and, and sitting alone in your basement, watching Netflix is, is not meaningful for most folks. Right. So, so would you say then that the, well, I want to go and ask you two things now. One is that you said that the majority of doctors who end up on CBC don't necessarily reflect the views of all doctors in Canada, especially the ones who you work with. I'm curious to know whether that might be because you live it or you work, you practice in smaller communities. Um, 100,000 to 500,000 is not the same as a Toronto or a Vancouver, and there's less of a chance for exponential growth and spread because of that. Uh, I'm not able to answer that question for you as to the why. Um, I think that if if I wanted to have a firm answer to a question like that, and I, I went through this actually with a CBC journalist who framed a question as, why are your views in the minority? Like, And I was like, well, hang on. How do you know my views are in the minority? Has anyone done a scientific poll of physicians and nurses or, or scientists? Um, and she was like, no. And then I was like, well, then then we don't know. So I, I can't say with certainty um, that there's a geographic distribution in how people feel about lockdowns. Uh, and I don't have the tools, i.e. like surveying to, to figure out if that's true. So I, I, what, what you speculated that people who are living, uh, jowl by jowl and taking the subway, uh, packed like sardines might be more concerned about infectious disease. Uh, but I don't have any objective data to verify that myself. Okay. That's, well, the reason I'm guessing that the reason I think that your view is a minority one, um, is based on what I've seen in the, the news, I've been following Alberta's case uh, closely because that's where my parents live right now. And um, it seems like with the letters from 500 doctors sent to Premier Jason Kenney asking for more stringent lockdown measures, things like that, it seems like what the media is portraying doctors as being and scientists as being is all in favor of um, a lockdown at when, when cases are rising uh, so quickly. So I, I 100% agree with you that that is what is portrayed in media. Um, the like you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the Great Barrington Declaration. I am not. Could you go into it a bit? So it's a it's a I guess statement that was crafted by three public health scientists or epidemiologists at uh, Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, uh, and it was signable. So I was one of the kind of 30 core. Uh, physicians and scientists who signed it. But but since then, uh, 650,000 other people have added their names, among them, I think, 13,000 scientists and 30,000 uh, medical practitioners. And again, this sounds conspiratorial, but, it, but Google dropped it. You couldn't find it on Google. Uh, it, it was the number one hit on Google for the first 24 hours of its existence, and then it was unfindable. Uh, so Unfortunately, we, we are living in this moment where our perceptions of public opinion and reality are kind of being tailored by the social media companies that we uh, spend all of our attention on. So I and I, again, I'm not I'm not saying that I know the answer here as to what's the majority and what's the minority opinion. Um, but I think that there are. It's, I know it sounds conspiratorial when I say, you know, shadowy forces at work, but I don't mean the Illuminati. I, I just mean journalists and their biases and the people that they work for and, and money talking and these sorts of things. 
Right. Um, okay, so with lockdowns, you're mostly against them in the sense that they don't actually save lives. Is that right? Uh, again, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very skeptical person. I don't know with certainty that they don't save lives over any period of time. I have a hard time understanding how over a year and a half, um, which is, you know, so back in March, we anticipated it would be about a year and a half before full deployment of vaccines. Um, that wasn't my opinion. That was that was sort of the opinion of Anthony Fauci and, and other um, people leading national level responses. Uh, but I, I took that as the I took that opinion and ran with it in, in some of my early spectator pieces. I I. I I I wrote that I anticipated it would be about a year and a half to a vaccine. I don't see how a two week lockdown at any point saves lives. Uh, And I don't think anyone was willing to do a year and a half lockdown. I think a year and a half lockdown would kill a lot of people. Um, But so no, it's not precisely the case that I don't think any lockdown ever could save a life. Um, But I, I think in terms of what was being asked of us versus what was necessary and what was possible, um, lockdowns such as they were did not save lives. In my country or our country, I think that it's clear that some countries, usually small, rich, tropical island nations uh, like New Zealand, Australia, kind of, uh, South Korea, Singapore. Uh, I know South Korea is not an island, but it has a it has it has a very significant border that not a lot of people traverse. Um, Japan, Taiwan, these places have all succeeded with something like a zero COVID strategy. So I don't mean, again, just to underline, I don't mean that lockdowns can't save any life anywhere at any time. I mean that I don't think it was the right strategy uh, for Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom. Okay. And so then what what would be the right strategy for a place like Alberta, um, which is seeing a second wave pop up? Um, so... What has been clear and has only become more clear about COVID-19 since March. So back in March, we were dealing with data from uh, the People's Republic of China, which, as you may have already gathered, I'm rather a critic of the communist government of China. Uh, So I didn't know whether we could trust that data, but it has since been validated that uh, somebody over 80 is a thousand times more likely to die of coronavirus than somebody under 30. So the, the overall mortality from coronavirus will not be dependent so much on how many cases there are, but rather on who gets those cases. Yeah? Right. So um, what the Great Barrington Declaration ended up proposing, but what I was proposing um, six months before it was written, was a focused protection plan. I think that it would have been possible to highly isolate and protect vulnerable people. So that's people over about 60 or people with an important medical problem which may be rather minor, like some younger people with moderate asthma might not view themselves as ill, um, but that might be a very significant risk factor for dying by COVID. Um, Based on the reproductive number of coronavirus and uh, the the implied herd immunity threshold from that, one might have imagined back in March, and we have no reason to think this is wrong at this point, that about 60% of people uh, would have to get coronavirus, become immune, to grant everyone herd immunity. So if it was possible at any point to um, isolate and protect that one third of society who were vulnerable and let everyone else get on with their lives, um, I think we would have had uh, much better mental health outcomes. I think we would have had much less of a hit to our economy. And I ultimately think that fewer people would have died overall. Right. 
Um, well, with herd immunity, do we shouldn't we know first that that is actually something that we can have in the first place, immunity to COVID nineteen, um, before well taking this gamble and hoping that it would work? Um. So, so you're the one with a philosophy degree. When do we know something? Like when, when will we know if there's immunity to COVID-19? I won't force you to answer that, uh, but I'll tell you some reasons why I think that I know that there's immunity to COVID-19. Sure. Knowing that I'm not, nothing is ever 100% certain in medicine, ever. Um, there have been 45 million cases of COVID-19 depending on how high you set the bar for a well-documented case of reinfection, uh, there's been between six and 26 cases of reinfection in the world. Yeah. So, okay. So maximally one in 2 million people who have had COVID-19 have been reinfected. So that, if I don't know how you look at a statistic like that and say, there's no evidence of immunity to COVID-19. Like, right. That's, I, th- I think that's overwhelming evidence. And then there's just what we know sort of biomechanically about the immune system, that there's been lasting immunity in humans to every other coronavirus uh, that has gone round. So Asian flu, Hong Kong flu, um, uh, and Spanish flu also provided uh, lasting human immunity. Um, SARS-1 was a coronavirus and uh, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there were some papers where people had looked at survivors of SARS-1 and found that they had lasting immunity uh, seven years later. They since have gone back to those people, tested them again, they still have immunity um, to SARS-1, what are we, like 16 years later. So like you, I I can ask you, how do you know the sun will rise again tomorrow? And like you get into the whole David Hume induction problem. And I'd like to. Um, so you had you had two responses to my question of how do we know that herd immunity works? One was um, if you look at the stats, forty um, something. I forgot the exact number. Many millions of people have gotten infected by COVID nineteen, and out of that, a very minuscule number of people have um, been reinfected, which is great proof to show that we can be immune to it. But the thing is that we didn't know that at the beginning of the crisis. And so now we can go ahead with herd immunity, but we couldn't have gone ahead with it back then. Um, Boy, and I've forgotten you my second point was that right. every other coronavirus and most right uh, in, in every other upper respiratory tract infection in humans that I can think of also grants uh, lasting immunity. Right. Well, um, uh, Nassim Taleb, he talks about the turkey problem, which is, you know, every day that the turkey, the, a turkey goes to Harvard and then he gets his um, PhD in modeling and he looks and looks and every day he finds that he is probably going to live tomorrow because every day that's come back in the past, uh, he, he survives. And so the day before Thanksgiving, he is the most certain that he is going to live tomorrow and that the sun will rise again. But unfortunately for him, he is wrong. And the same thing goes with COVID-19, I can argue. Um, It's that, you know, we might have, people who've gotten SARS-1 might have been um, immune six years later with other coronaviruses, they were fine. But we didn't, we didn't, governments didn't know that about 
COVID-19 and therefore um, to prevent them from being responsible legally, um, it would have been better to protect everyone rather than hope uh, for herd immunity to, to be a thing. I think if protecting people from COVID-19 was completely benign, if it, if it, if it was like brushing your teeth prevented COVID-19, then yes, you absolutely must not uh, allow uh, unmitigated spread of COVID-19 because you're trying to save money on toothbrushes. But it was so far from benign. Um, All the the things we've already mentioned, the overdoses, the suicides, the homicides. Um, So I think that there has to be some probability weighting as to what are the chances that immunity doesn't exist versus how much harm are we causing um, by the by the strategy that we've adopted, right? Like like everything in life has to be risk benefit analysis. And I I've not I, I you know I I've watched some talks that uh, Nassim Taleb has given. I, I've not engaged deeply with his work, so I don't I don't know the Turkey analogy. But what is the Turkey supposed to do? Not go to Harvard? start a, an underground revolutionary? Like, what is the Turkey's other option? You, you kind of just have to believe that there's going to be a tomorrow. And we're all turkeys because we're all going to die one day and the sun may not rise tomorrow. Um, but we have, to, we have to probabilistically assess what our best option is to, to get the most meaning in our lives possible. And, and canceling my dad's funeral or canceling my wedding um, or becoming unemployed, we're not going to school. Like, uh, all of these things are, are severely, uh, bad, like not good, you know, in a more utilitarian, uh... Right. Well, with Nassim Taleb, he always ends that, that Turkey story by saying, my point is we just shouldn't be turkeys. Um, and so that's to not assume that the future will be, uh, like, you can't use you shouldn't be a turkey by not assuming the future will follow the the past you should always be aware that there's going to be a once in a lifetime event um, that you cannot predict which will upend everything um, there always will be you will die we're all mortal like i'm i'm 100% sure i'm going to die one of these days and it but i have to figure out what i'm going to do with my life until then right the okay and okay so the next thing i wanted to ask you about then was the specifics of what you think the the solution should be one is do you think that governments should be enforcing masks um i think that i think there's so there are so many cultural touchstones for um how we've dealt with infectious disease in the past that I think are useful. And, and one that comes immediately to mind is HIV. So at no point during the HIV epidemic did we demand that everyone wear condoms all of the time. We made it illegal to knowingly infect someone with HIV or to put someone in a position where you were likely going to infect them with HIV. So if you, if you knew that you had HIV, if you didn't disclose this to your partner, if you didn't use protection to your partner, that, that was assault or, uh, or I don't know if, I think they called it assault. It might've been negligence or in the worst case manslaughter. I don't know what the legal history of that maneuver was. Um, but it, it, it seems to me quite likely that masks can prevent you from giving COVID-19 to someone else. 
Um, so I think that masks certainly have their place. I don't think that place is everywhere all of the time. Uh, I'm very happy to wear a mask when I uh, uh, engage clinically with a vulnerable person. That that makes total sense to me. Uh, if I, um, I, I, and I, so so one thing that concerns me is several American cities. I shouldn't say several. I know Cambridge, Massachusetts is one. You must wear a mask outdoors at all times. That seems completely insane to me. That seems not evidence based. Uh, but but ultimately, I think it should have to do with people making personal choices about their personal risks. So if I want to go play billiards with, uh, if I'm in college and I want to play billiards with my three best friends who are all 21 at the pool hall, um, I don't think we should be forced to wear masks in that situation. Uh, if I'm a bar owner and I say, um, you know, at this bar, I, I, I'm not going to force people to wear masks, come in at your own risk. I think you should be able to come in at your own risk. Uh, but but obviously, I don't think anyone should be able to cough on an elderly person's face on the bus. And I and you know, so grocery stores, public transit, these sorts of essential things that vulnerable people must use. I, I think I think we can have that conversation about whether masks ought to be uh, mandatory in such places at all times. That's that's surprising. I I would have expected you to have said that masks in every indoor setting should be enforced. I I wasn't expecting that. No, I like I, it, it's it's honestly my belief that uh, it, yeah it, it it's my belief that competent adults who are pre- presented with appropriate information can make their own choices about their health care and the risks that they're willing to take. So right. um, and I and that. That be- I don't even know if I should call it belief, maybe position. That position of mine uh, informs all of the clinical medicine that I do. And it informs, frankly, all of the clinical medicine that all of my colleagues do if they're, if they're practicing patient-centered medicine. So uh, it's, it's strange to me that um, most people don't see it that way. I have a counter-argument to that that I thought of in response to a friend um, on Facebook who who said something similar. Um, uh, so he was talking about car crashes and how every time you get into a car, you take a risk that you will be killed or that you will kill someone else. And this is a decision that you make. Um, and likewise, uh, going and going to a barbecue joint or a bar is a decision that you make. You are the best person in, or, or visiting your sick and dying parent. That's also a risk and a decision that you make that you take in consultation with them and you are the person with the best knowledge on the situation to determine whether that's a good risk or not um, my car- counter argument to that was that um, car crashes are additive but vac- uh, but flus and diseases are multiplicative which means that the risks are exponential for for sicknesses, but are simply just like the worst you can do if you kill, if you get into a car crash is kill a family of five. No, but you can kill, you can kill the humble Broncos, right? You can kill 25 young men uh, in the prime okay. of their life. 25. Sure. It's still, still a, a lot of people, um, but it's not as much as the number of people you could kill if you are infectious and you go out and you infect a hundred people. Um, 
And so because the risk, because of those numbers that you could be doing uh, damage to, um, the, the, consider, the risks are not simply a person's own risks. They are also risks to the community. And therefore, um, the community also needs to decide what the rules are for individual conduct. Um, and to like an analogy would be like, you know, if you wanted to light a candle, you should be free to consider the risk of burning your own house down. But if you live in a wooden, in a set of wooden row houses, um, you know, the risk is not just to your own house, it's also to your, to your neighbors. And so while you might benefit individually from this risk, if you fail, um, you share the risk with your neighbors. And because of that, your neighbors have a say in what you do inside your own house. So have we ever banned candles? Are you aware of any jurisdiction where candles are banned? No. But I do know that in Montreal, where I live right now, they don't allow for bonfires, which I think is ridiculous. But in the house, you're not allowed a bonfire in your house? Outside, like like a fire pit, sorry, not a bonfire. Okay, sure. I mean, I, I, I think you're... I mean this with love. I think your analogy was self-defeating. If it's like lighting a candle in a row house, why haven't we banned candles in row houses? Like... Obviously, that's just not the social contract that we have that that we're going to uh, and and then I guess I, and I, I think I would also make um, a reductio ad absurdium. Right. So if if you could kill a billion people from COVID-19 and so the government decides we're just going to put you down like you might kill a billion people. We're just going to put a bullet in your head. Would that be would that be just like, like what are what are you balancing? Um, I, I don't think, I don't think for one thing, I, I think the average number of deaths that you will cause by getting COVID-19 is probably about zero. Like, sure. It could be exponential. If you were the first person with COVID-19 in the whole world, um, then the math might work out that way. But I think if we add with all the COVID that's in Montreal, if you um, become COVID positive or negative, I, I don't think that averages out to many extra deaths. Uh, I think that you running over a family of four and two toddlers losing their lives would be uh, far much, a, a much greater loss of net good in the world. Do you not? I see what you're saying um, because the, the rate of, of, mortality for COVID is so low and we already take precautions like wearing masks and not going to clubs and stuff like that. Um, I think you're right. You probably would do more damage to the community if you killed a family of four than if you went around and infected maybe 50 people. Um, but if you are capable of infecting, I'm, I'm just going on a limb here. If you're capable of infecting 50 people, that means that other people are capable of infecting 50 and like the, the reproduction rate is exponential. And so you're still going to get um, many people dying as a result of you going around with it. What do you believe um, is the death rate from COVID-19? What do I think it is? Yeah. Like 0.5. Okay, close enough. Yeah. So, so, somewhere around there. so if you give it to 50 people and they give it to 50 people. Uh, Let's look. We're 
think we're at we're at like 1.25 people will die so that's 2500 divided by um 200 yeah 13 people would die um but what about the people who don't die who get like these sicknesses who age by 10 years their their brain will age by 10 years or they'll be stuck in the hospital for 12 16 months and sorry excuse me your brain will age age by 12 years like i I I think we have to probabilistically weigh all of this um, and and nobody knows like what what percentage of people who get COVID-19 will have uh, a hit to their cognitive function from it. That's not a percentage that anyone has described. Um, And I I think I think we're still. I think we're just still not taking account of the other side of the ledger. Like, so if you're, if you're under 50 and you get COVID-19, you're more likely to die in an accident this year. So it's just not, it's not the case that we're dealing with death and disability versus uh, everlasting life and and the fountain of youth. Like you're going to age and die either way. And and this is what I, I think a lot of these analogies are not taking account of that, that life is finite either way. So it has to be a kind of risk assessment. And I don't think governments can make that risk assessment on behalf of everyone everywhere. And thank you for pointing out the, the flaw with my analogy, by the way. Um, I should fix that because it no, is no, it's a weak point. Um, a better one would then be, so the point that I was trying to make with it is that in situations where um, the risk, the downsides of uh, the risk the, the downsides of the choice that you're making, of the risky choice that you're making, um, if that is shared with the community, um, but you are the only one who benefits from the upside, then government has a role to intervene. If, and hopefully there's a way to do this, if you're in a situation where you're the only one with the downsides, but the community shares all of the benefits, then the government should be like, trying to incentivize that. So an example of the first situation is fishing rights. You have um, unlimited fish in the sea and there are 10 different fishermen. If they all go out and fish, they're going to deplete the oceans of fish. Um, So what government needs to do is step in and stop them. Um, For each one of them, they just, they have much to gain, but collectively they're all going to lose. and the alternative for the second one would be building something like a beautiful building where um, if you are the person who's building it, um, you're going to spend a lot of money and hopefully you get that money back. Or if, if the building collapses, you're done, but hopefully not many other people die. If the building succeeds, then the people on the street, tourists will come. It's going to create a lot more good. And I would say that COVID-19 and the risks around it are much more like the first case where um, if you are infectious, um, the, the, if you're infectious, then you are, and, and you go on to infect people, then it's much more likely that you're going to do more damage. You're going to share that damage rather than share the good. And even if you don't do well, 
um, sorry, even if you do well, um, other people may not do well. You said earlier in response to this that uh, we don't really have enough information saying that there's going to be lots of brain damage or or symptoms that are never going to recover, that you're never going to recover from, from COVID-19. But I would say then that this is something in favor of my position. If you don't know what's going to be the consequence, then you need to be precautious rather than liberal in your policy because you don't know. Okay, you made two points. Uh, so I'll deal with the, the, the more recent one because it's sure. more uh, at hand. The, what you're describing is called the precautionary principle, uh, that if we don't know, we should be safe. But global worldwide lockdown has never been done either. We don't know what the repercussions of that are. We, we don't know how many more people will die of tuberculosis or how many pe more people will die of measles because they're not getting vaccinated or how many children will die of malnourishment or because uh, we don't have as much money for malaria. Pro like 800,000 children die every year of malaria. Um, and we, we don't know what's going to happen to that number because we've decided to decimate the world economy. Uh, so the precautionary principle acts on both sides of the ledger. Yeah. Right. Um, so we're all having to make a kind of, it's like playing poker. We, we know our hand, but we don't know the cards on the table yet. Um, so we all kind of have to come up with a, um, our, our, our best risk assessment. Regarding positive and negative externalities, the builder and the fisher, um, there's been a lot written about how to s resolve these problems. Um, when I last took a political philosophy class, uh, John Rawls was sort of the, the last word on things. Uh, and I, I find the veil of ignorance to be a very uh, convincing and powerful idea. So I think if you can have all 10 fishers perform the veil of ignorance experiment and decide how many fish should be taken out. I think that's a great solution. Similarly for a, a built, um, how beautiful should buildings be? If we could have everyone in the community imagine themselves as the builder or as the person who walks by the building and come up with it. Um, so I, that's a, that's a common resolution in political philosophy in everything else. It's not something that we've really tried in COVID-19 to ask who are the stakeholders? What would they feel? So, you're probably aware that in many countries, the average age of death by COVID-19 is higher than the, li the life expectancy in those countries, which is not to say, like, so if I live to be 85, my personal life expectancy is, is about 95, uh, something like that. Once you get over 80, your life expectancy is halfway to 100. Um, but for everyone in the community overall, life expectancy in Canada, I think is about 83 for men, maybe 85 for women. If we included seniors in long-term care who have significant medical problems, um, who are uh, 80, 85% of the people who have died of COVID-19 in Canada, if they were, or if we all were in the, uh, under the veil of ignorance, if we, if we weren't sure whether we were the elder or the toddler, do you think we would decide, yes, let's isolate the elders from their family for nine months and and send all the children home from school so that the 85 year old who, who's, who's suffering from many chronic conditions has their best chance of living. It, it, here's another important statistic. If you're in a nursing home in Canada, your life expectancy is 18 months. So should we socially isolate those folks for nine months to, to give them their best shot at making it to 18 months? 
I don't, I mean, you know, you can do away with the veil of ignorance. I don't think that most cogent elders in nursing homes would say, yes, please, please lock me down for nine months. Don't let me see my family and send my grandchildren home from school so that I can live 18 months rather than nine months. I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a deal most people would make. And so yeah. I, I really think when you break it down and you think rationally about what the pros and cons and the probabilistic weighted outcomes of our decisions are, I don't think we would choose the approach that we've chosen. And that's, I mean, that's really the long and short of it from, from my perspective. I, I would agree with you. Um, if I were in, and maybe 80 years from now or 60 years from now, rather, I'll change my mind. But if I were in a nursing home, I think I would rather suffer COVID-19 um, with my family beside me than to die alone or to um, be alone for a long time. I saw that article which you posted on Twitter um, where a woman uh, opted for assisted suicide rather than to be locked down and isolated for a few more months. Um, so I agree with you there. And I also think that with regards to nursing, um, not nursing, sorry, with regards to old age care homes, um, if a senior would like to come back and spend the few remaining months of his or her life with his family, um, I think that that isn't, that wouldn't affect many other people. Um, and so it's fine from a risk assessment, community risk assessment uh, position from my perspective. And I, I like the veil of ignorance idea that you brought up. I think that most people would, um, would selfishly want to spend, or not selfishly, rationally want to spend time with their families during their last days. Yeah. And that's not happening now. I don't know. I, I may, I, I don't know if you've heard me tell the story, but my, my wife came home. Sorry. It's a very whiny dog that I have. I don't usually treat her every time she whines, but for the sake of our sound quality. Um, my wife came home from work one day crying because a woman in her care had died and the woman's husband was not allowed to see her for the last 10 days of her life because he had recently been out of the country going to his mother's funeral. So although he had tested negative for COVID, he wasn't allowed into the hospital to say goodbye to his wife who died. And um, my wife said he screamed like an animal when she told him that she was gone and he wasn't going to get to say goodbye. And I, I think I think that sort of thing, it, it, well, it sure affected her a lot. It affects me a lot to hear that. And I don't think that's well accounted for in the, in the kind of exponential community mathematical modeling type thing. I, like, yeah. I, I just, I don't think that length of life is actually what people value most in their lives. Right. So I guess from your perspective, you think that what governments are valuing, valuing in their policies, which is basically to maximize life, um, but not looking at the quality of life or what's being missed out on is not the optimal solution. Well, I mean, if we're returning to governments, uh, I think what governments are maximizing is reducing people shouting at them, reducing the chances that they'll be, that they'll lose the next election. And it seems for what, for I think deeply irrational reasons that the way people are judging their governments is based on case rates. Um, 
So, mm. which, as, as I already discussed, I don't, I don't think are what predict best how many people ultimately die of COVID-19. So I, I think, uh, yeah, I think, they're, I think they're using very flawed metrics uh, and they're coming up with very non-optimal um, decisions. And I think, like, it's a democracy. We're going to have the flawed governments that we deserve um, so long as we don't uh, think rationally and skeptically about what COVID-19 means in terms of utility and suffering in our lives. We're going to keep shouting at our governments that they should do things that are irrational. Um, and I think the only way we get over that is for societies to be increasingly educated or reflective about these matters. And the only way that I know to get people to be more educated and reflected about these matters is to do debates like this. Oh, but sorry, I don't, I don't know that you wanted to frame that. Yeah, yeah. I, I like it. Uh, like, I, I like that you're, um, I think best in argument, I guess I would say, like, I don't think I've, I don't feel like I thought something unless I've argued about it. Um, in, in like the philosophical sense of argument, not like, not like shouting right. at your, uh, at your. Those are fun too, though. Sometimes. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I like, I, my commitment is to keep trying to raise these issues and to keep trying to increase reflection on these points. Um, and I think even if I'm wrong, I don't think I'm wrong, but even if I'm wrong, I think we're going to get to better policymaking as a result. Um, and so one thing that's really been extraordinarily troubling to me is blowback I have received from, you know, social media trolls, but also um, people in my life, a few people in my life and not my close friends, but, but some people who like, you know, a classmate of mine emailed me to say that what I was saying was dangerous. And, and what if people aren't terribly scared of the virus, then they won't adopt the public health measures that we're trying to terrify them into. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't think promoting terror in order to promote compliance is a good long-term strategy in a democracy. And this is a classmate from med school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone I'm not terribly close with, like, emailed me early on to say, not exactly how dare you, but kind of how dare you. Like, um, we, need to, we need to keep the ignorant masses blind to um, right. what, what this decision algorithm actually looks like. And how do you... I want to, every, every time something comes up like this, there are two things that I want to tackle. One is, um, how do you deal with these personal attacks? Um, not attacks, but doubts, um, challenges. And two is, are you telling me that there's a, there's really a, no. Do you think this, this discussion, this theater, which is going on between experts, like between doctors, um, to keep up the terror is sustainable today, and is that what would lead the most to the most trust being established? Yeah, I think absolutely not. I think uh, I, I I just finished a book on Chernobyl uh, by Kate Brown, who's a historian at MIT. It's called Manual for Survival. It was a really excellent book. I I knew about Chernobyl on like a Wikipedia level, but to to read a whole book about how the Soviet government lied to its neighbors, how it lied to the people uh, in the villages surrounding Chernobyl, um, saying, oh, I know, telling them the, the radiation levels were safe, you could continue to farm there, shipping the, that farm produce across Europe, um, e even as um, uh, multitudes of children were being admitted to hospital with radiation sickness or thyroid cancer, saying it's all, it all, 
It's all statistical variance, not, nothing actually to see here. Um, it, and this is a, this kind of textbook level facts at this point uh, that historians are, are writing. The, the World Health Organization helped cover up Chernobyl at the behest of the Soviets, the, the kind of U- Ukrainian grassroots peasants movement to uncover the truth was very disappointed. They, they, they summoned the World Health Organization and the World Health Organization glossed over it. Um, and Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, credits the Chernobyl cover-up with bringing down the Soviet Union. There was a complete loss of trust in the Soviet system after they lied to them about their children dying of radiation poisoning. Um, I'm not saying that my former classmate trying to gin up fear um, in order to cause compliance with social distancing is on the scale of Chernobyl. Um, but I think that, I think that, it, I think the principle is the same, that we live in a democracy. We have, it's been 800 years since the Magna Carta. We have personal rights. We all get to think about things, discuss them in the public square, come to our own conclusions, cast our votes accordingly. Um, and that's how you get a government that you trust. And when people can see that process going on, they have a lot more faith in it um, than, you know, being told that Epstein commit suicide, committed suicide and don't you dare ask any questions or else you're a conspiracy theorist. Right. Or questioning whether the virus was... Um, man-made automatically makes you a conspiracy theorist. I, I don't think that it was. Well, um, it's a hypothesis that needs to be questioned and yeah, maybe evidence in the I, end. I don't even know if I would go so far as to say it was man-made. I'm just saying it, I, I think it it it, it surpasses um, coincidence. I think that that's all. Like it could have been that they found a wild virus in bats around, and then they were. Um, uh, they were storing it for future research and it got out or something like, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not suggesting anything nefarious. Um, I am just suggesting, and sorry if you didn't want to talk about this, but it, since, since I opened the can of worms earlier, I, I think I, I, I should mention, and also because Chernobyl is a, is a terrific parallel. The Chinese Communist Party has 1.5 million people in concentration camp right now. They just took over Hong Kong in complete contravention of their treaty with the United Kingdom. Uh, I am old enough, you maybe are not, to remember the Free Tibet movement of the 90s that went nowhere. I don't think that the Chinese Communist Party is any worse than uh, 1930s Germany. Sorry, is any better or worse than 1930s Germany. Like, they ran over Tank Man. Um, so it's it's very bizarre to me that... And I said, you know, I'm aware that that was my most contrary opinion. Um, but that in Canada in 2020, um, by asking aloud whether this extremely evil government might be responsible for some of what's going on is, is considered wacky conspiracy theory is, uh, is very strange. It's very surprising. That's all. Right. I, I also, yeah. So two parts to each episode that I try to do. One is what's your contrarian opinion? And two, how do you deal with the, the, the social response to that? Um, and that was the other question that I wanted to ask you. How do you deal with your, your friend, not your friend, your former peer um, who asked you this question, the trolls on Twitter, all of the blowback? Um, trolls, I just block. Um, when, 
you know, my acquaintance who sent me that email, I had a very easy time writing an email back because I know what I believe and I know what my values are and, and freedom and free speech and um, rational thought and deep reflection are core values of mine. And, and speaking up for vulnerable people, um, such as the elderly in nursing homes. So I, I know there's no interesting or meaningful life for me where I just think or do or don't speak things uh, because a, a busybody um, said so. Like, I, I just, I know that's not an option for me in my life. Um, there has been blowback from some people that I work with, some people who are my superiors. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, and again, just knowing what my values are and it helps to be good, um, uh, to be good at arguing and, and, and lucky for me, I, I got, I got into those messes by writing and, and, uh, I kind of wrote my way in and I, and I am generally able to write my way out. Um, it, even though people forget that we live in a Western democracy and that our values were uh, things that um, they weren't handed to us. I mean, that we we were we were um, they're our birthright, but they were they were figured out by Hume and Locke and Smith and J, uh, John Stuart Mill. Um, and so, having had the opportunity earlier in life to engage with those with those authors, oh my goodness, this dog um, and. Think about that and knowing how to, you know, reproduce those arguments um, has certainly instead, in fact. Hmm. Would you mind if we went into a bit more detail on the blowback from your superiors? Like what, what they charged you with and how you responded to that? Yeah, there were no charges. Um, or not charges, like what they accused you of. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to call anyone out. So, and, and again, I will say that I, uh, I have privileges at several hospitals. Um, so at one hospital, I think some of these institutions just don't know how to deal with complaints. So um, when things were kind of getting started in terms of my public commentary, um, I had like 800 followers on Twitter. I, I wrote a tweet that went viral. And I think 2 million people saw that tweet. So... If 0.0001% of the people who saw that tweet complain, you're the one with the calculator. But I think there were like two complaints that came in uh, to the complaints department at the hospital. And they were kind of unreflexively sent to me as like, please stop, we're getting complaints. Um, and I just replied to that email with, uh, I, think we're in a, I think society's in a real big pickle right now. I, th I happen to be an expert in critical care and, and COVID-19 major concerns that it causes critical illness. Uh, we need experts to openly say what they're seeing with their eyes, which is what the tweet was. It was just an eyewitness testimony that I gave um, about, you know, without, without betraying anyone's confidence, what was going on in the hospital at that time. Um, so if we, if we don't allow people to say what they're seeing and we don't allow them to discuss it openly... Uh, that is not going to make our pickle any better. Um, so we need everyone to be thinking clearly and, and, and writing honestly about what they think is the way forward. Um, I also took the liberty of getting legal advice and the lawyer who I consulted laughed 
um, they thought it was hilarious that, that my superior tried to do that in that case. So, so I proceeded undaunted from there and, and, um, eventually something came up with another institution that I work at. Uh, and I took the same tact, um, and, and ultimately, uh, I think, I think freedom will win, uh, and, and, and has, uh, in both those episodes for me so far. Most people are not like you in the sense that they don't know what their values are. And two, even if they did know their values, they wouldn't be willing to risk their careers, um, their reputations publicly to, to, to push back against, you know, their bosses telling them to stop, basically. How did you come to learn what your values are and then to be willing to defend them? Um... I think I decided about three and a half years ago that I um, wanted a meaningful life. I, I don't know if you happen to have read uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. It affected me a lot. Um, and I, I think I had just... I, I, I don't know if that was... In, I think everyone wants a meaningful life. It took a while to figure out that a life of doing what you're told by sometimes corrupted institutions is not meaningful and can lead to um, not just to lack of meaning, but uh, no, you know, I mean, the lack of meaning is the more important thing, but but also physical immiseration. Um, I know, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. I, I skipped a bunch of grades when I was uh, in, in school. So I, I finished all my specialty training when I was 27, and which is really young to be a critical care doctor. And I was really um, blessed to get a job right out of the gate. It's really hard to get jobs in critical care. And um, you must never tell anyone this, podcast listeners, but specialist physicians in Canada make uh, too much money. It's, it's too much. It's, it, it disgusts me. Um, and so I moved to this community hospital where I had an amazing job making a ton of money and I quickly became very miserable, like within a week, um, because the, I, I trained at Western University in London and there there's like 800 residents, all of whom were, if not my close friends, friendly and, uh, and many of them were my close friends. Um, the community that I moved to also had a university, but it is mostly undergrads and, uh, there was just no one to hang out with. Like everyone was 18 to 21 and I was 27 and everyone else was 35 and married with children. Um, so there was that, the, like the lack of social connection. Um, there was also grinding lack of professional meaning. So when I was training in medicine, it was really hard. It was challenging. Like you're up all night, but you're there with your friends. Once I knew how to do it, it was no longer intellectually as engaging as when I didn't know how to do it and I was still learning. Do what? Practice medicine. Oh, okay. And, and then as my, my, I would say my expertise or my skill still grew to the point where I realized that a lot of what I was doing wasn't helping anything. So, um, like 15% of my practice as a life support specialist for seven years was suicide and overdose. Um, and many of those patients were repeat customers. So like using life support to, uh, 
temporize the fact that somebody tried to kill themselves is necessary, but obviously not changing the game. Um, I would say easily two thirds, probably three quarters of my patients over seven years um, were critically ill because of, I don't want to say decisions, but lifestyle factors. So every week that I went to work, maybe one person died of alcohol, two died of cigarettes, and three or four died of um, overweight and diabetes um, high blood pressure, that, that kind of whole cascading line of things. Um, so I knew that I was really stressed out about putting band-aids on, on giant gaping wounds and, and that wasn't meaningful. And then, and then some of it was just like, obviously not meaningful. So in, in Ontario, you must never tell this to anyone, podcast listeners, you can, and maybe this is too boring. So just stop me, but it, it, no, had, such an, it had such an effect on me. When I started practice, so it, if a doctor orders an EKG, like in the hospital, 100% of the time, that doctor reads the EKG to decide if the patient's having a heart attack or, or, or a, an arrhythmia or, or whatever the concern is. And then it gets filed. <clears throat> but the rule in all the hospitals in Ontario is a specialist doctor later has to come and sign off on the EKG. So every week, I would do weeks on and weeks off. Um, and the weeks on were very grueling. And the weeks off were totally free. But I would have to come in on my weeks off to um, prepare these EKG reports to sign off on them. And at the beginning of my career, they've since cut it, but at the beginning it was $10 per. And once you got good at it, it maybe takes you 30 seconds maximally. They're also read by a computer and the AI has gotten better, but the Ministry of Health doesn't know that. So like you quickly learn what things the computer gets wrong and it ends up being how fast can I sign my name for $10. And I hated it so much because nobody ever read those reports that I would have to go in and do four hours of signing my name. It was the most lucrative way I could spend four hours in my life so far. Um, and I, I hated it so much. Like I wanted to write a letter to the Minister of Health and be like, do you understand that you're paying like $300,000 a year to have these stupid EKG reports performed at this one community hospital in Ontario. Like, I, I, I don't know what the overall budget is for these useless reports that nobody's reading. Um, but it's, it's significant. But it's not just the waste of money. It was the waste of my soul. It was uh, and the waste of my, I don't want to say time, because I waste lots of time doing God knows what else. But um, it, it, caused soul suffering to have to do that. Um, so I very early in my career realized I was miserable, realized I had to find meaning in something else. And it, it took a while to figure out what that would be. Um, one thing that affected me a lot also, I don't know if you're familiar with the Mr. Money Mustache blog. Um, it's like a extreme frugality and financial independence blog. Um, who kind of, I think kind of makes the point that if you're able to save, I forget the exact numbers. If you're able to save two thirds of what you make, of what you make, you can retire in seven years if you know how to invest basically. Um, so I did that and I'm, I'm basically financially independent now. Like I, li I live a very modest life. I, I live in a, um, for the, for the, for the most part of the seven years I lived in a like $220,000 condo that I bought and I currently drive a 2011 Kia Rio, but I don't have to work for money anymore. <clears throat> um, and, and I, th I think lots of people can do that who don't know that they can, 
certainly it's my belief that every physician in Canada should be able to get financially independent within seven years. And then once you're financially independent, it's, it becomes a lot easier to tell your boss that, no, I'm, I'm not going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to blow my whistle. I'm going to keep writing. Um, so I think, yeah, it was, it was that long process of realizing that a job qua job does not give a life of meaning that, um, Nassim Taleb calls that uh, fuck you money. It sounds like you have fuck you money. Yeah, I'm not as a... Uh... So I will say with those two episodes with hospital administrators, I'm, I'm not the sort of person to say fuck you. To... Right. right. And right. I, I didn't. And um, I'm glad that I had the financial ability or um, even philosophical ability to to get in trouble and then get out of trouble. Um, but I found the interpersonal conflict part awful. Like I really, really hated it um, in both cases. So I'm not, like I, I like to argue, but I don't like to fight, um, certainly not people I know. So right. that I don't, that part I don't have a solution for. Like my, my kind of uh, bias towards agreeableness, at least in person. I know, I know sometimes my Twitter can be terse, but... That, yeah, that's something that I'm learning too. Um, do you have any other life advice? Because, wait, hold on. So from your move from the the signing those forms for $10 to what you're doing now, how did you make that move? And how did you know that it was the meaningful thing to do? Was it just trial and error or? Yeah. Um, I So I think as I was approaching financial independence, so it took seven years ultimately uh, but by by five years and you know we've had to run up the market um so things were going a little bit faster than i thought i was like oh my god this is really happening and then i started thinking well maybe i should start planning my retirement my retirement more or less so what i did then was i went down to halftime at, at that job and almost immediately i found out if i was only doing it halftime i didn't hate it as much at all and I I, never, I, never, I don't hate my job. I like I, I hope I didn't say that. Um, not that, not that I heard. Or yeah, thank you. Uh, not not precisely. Anyways, uh, it, it it's like the minute by minute. I I liked it. I liked talking to people and helping them. But it was the it was the overall lifestyle that just was not working. Anyway, so as soon as I went down to halftime, like you know, just in terms of the fatigue and burnout and sleeplessness, that all got better immediately. Um, and then I, I had realized that I needed time to figure out what to do with my time. So I, I'd written like a schedule on my days off where I was like, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna work out for this period of time. I'm gonna like try a, a martial art for this period of time. I'm gonna try writing for this period of time. I'm gonna do music for this period of time. And I, I was actually not perfectly regimented, but like rather regimented. And then what ended up happening was the, the part that I scheduled for writing just increased and increased, um, and then uh, I wrote something and I was like, wow, this is pretty good. I should publish this. Um, it was about a 17-year-old um, a patient I had who attempted suicide and then after resuscitated, after being resuscitated, felt the need to disclose to me that he was a neo-Nazi. Um, and this was happening around the time of Charlottesville. And he had such an effect on me. I was, I, I've, I've never in my life 
been almost unable to complete a consultation because I was so upset. Like, I, I was just like, why would you tell, like, in a, anyways, I, I wrote something about it and I thought, oh, this is, I think is publishable, but I have no idea how to publish it. And I like emailed it to the Globe and Mail uh, facts and arguments and never heard back. Um, but then I tweeted at, well, actually, I guess I'll say, I tweeted at John Kay, um, who, uh, Quillette. yeah, he's a Quillette editor. He was a National Post editor and the Walrus editor previous to that. But the, I think in the very first issue of the National Post, as far as I can recall, like my parents subscribed to the very first issue and he was a columnist in the very first issue. So I've known him since, I've known his writing since I was like 13. I totally didn't expect him to uh, tweet back at me. Uh, and then he, he sent me his email and I emailed him and he, he got me in touch with some editors and one of the editors that I was talking with said, oh, you should go do this program at the monk school. So I did this, um, program in journalism. And I remember I went to the online open, uh, like video town hall. And I remember my cheeks getting hot when they were, when they were describing the program and like, and what you might get to do, um, in the program. And I remember just being so excited about it. Um, so I went, I went and did it. Around the time that I was doing that program, um, my now wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, uh, came to Queens to train. Uh, and so I kind of hustled to find work here. And once I found um, work here, I love working here so much. It's, it's academic. Um, so it's, it's much more social. It's, it's like what I missed from my job. I forgot what question I'm answering, but, but, the, but the point is I made, I made time. Like I just had to identify that I was unhappy and then like get really serious about saying, I don't know how to get happy. I don't know how to make my life more meaningful. Um, but I'm, I'm like, I'm going to take kind of a systematic approach to, to fixing it. And now I have to ask you this too. How did you, how did that consultation end with the guy who tried to commit suicide and then came out as a neo-Nazi? No, no, no. He, oh, yeah, sorry. He didn't come out of the suicide attempt, but he came out to me. Um, uh, the same as it always does. Like, I'm a medical doctor, so if you commit suicide, I look after you until you're medically stable, and then a psychiatrist sees you. And um, I don't know, what I, I can't recall what the psychiatrist decided in that instance. I never ended up publishing that piece, even though now that I, I have more connections with editors. Um, it's one of the things I learned in journalism school. There's no way to fully write that story without... Um, violating that young man's confidentiality. So, like, I've told you some things, you know, that he was 17, that he attempted to commit suicide, but for the for the full picture of everything that was, um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't have to tell you his name, but I, I have to describe the situation in some ways that that person would be able to identify themselves in, the, in that story. So right. may, maybe I'll come back to it in a, in a more clever way one day, but... Um, It'll stay private for now. Yeah. Okay. Um, last well other than do you have any other great life advice um do you have any book recommendations uh i mentioned man's search for meaning uh hugely important um i think i mentioned john stuart mill i think everyone who lives yeah i was gonna say everyone who lives in a western democracy but everyone everyone who reads english should read on liberty I, i think it it's so foundational for how our society is set up and for what most people believe in their heart. They just haven't ever seen it expressed as well as he does. Um, I don't recall the title. I, I read a lot of Bertrand Russell at a uh, point in my life. Um, he has a discussion about how we know that reality is real, that I was just elegant, simple, convincing. Um, and to that end, also uh, Descartes' meditations are 
were hugely influential for me. You really found the meditations to be influential? Yeah. Did you not? No. I Well, when I read it, I was reading it for a course on like 16th century philosophy. And I just thought it was, he was very, well, it was amazing to be reading this work that you had heard the cogito ergo sum from and i was like oh this is cool um but i don't know it, it didn't change much of my own personal philosophy and i didn't think well, i didn't think that the stuff that he put forward like with regards to wax and how we can know what wax truly is um like that didn't have an effect on me uh, it, I, it might be because it already did. Like, like it could be that you just happened to already be where he was because it, um, of how you were philosophically brought up. Or, like, right. I, I, well, like it could have been old news for you. It has been like 350 years since he published it. I think our culture has adapted to it. Yeah, I think um, I, I grew up extremely religious and then moved away from that and then spent some time where I didn't, I didn't know anything. Uh, about what I thought about anything and that the the idea of adopting a position of uh what do they call it ultimate skepticism um, right. uh, radical doubt that's that's the word that's usually associated with it so you could really empathize with Descartes yeah but uh, and but the idea that from taking that radical doubt, which sounds nihilistic to be like, well, but, but really leaning into what if everything I think is a lie? What if I am um, a brain in a jar? What if a demon is casting a spell over my <clears throat> eyes? That you could come out of it with something and that that something could kickstart the enlightenment is, uh, is, is mind-blowing to me. Like, um, and... And so it, it's ended up being the approach I take to most things like COVID-19, like do lockdown save lives? Let's be radically doubtful. Um, uh, did it come from a wet market? Let's be radically doubtful. Um, so yeah, uh, that's what I got out of it. I, 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 I recall the wax, but I don't remember what we're supposed to get from the wax. So I can't tell you what I... Right. Oh yeah, he was just saying, uh, what? How do we really know what the wax is truly made out of? And... Basically, his conclusion is that though it might change um, from solid to liquid and stuff like that, there is a mathematical truth behind it, which is unchanging. And it is, and I can connect with, well, not that I remember this exactly, but I can connect with this mathematical truth using my mind. And that's how, and my mind is started by God, and I cannot be deceived by God or by my mind. So therefore, I know for sure that this wax, the mathematical stuff behind this mac wax is real um but i well i was raised catholic and i kind of fell away from it because i got kind of lazy i didn't really want to go to church that much anymore and i was listening to the new atheists and then i i kind of became a bitter atheist you know like a proselytizing type um but then in university i started listening to jordan peterson and and then at in my fourth year, I got into Nassim Taleb and I've read through Anti-Fragile. I'm, I'm starting to reread it right now. But I would say that I wasn't, I was never able to empathize with the whole idea of radical doubt because for me, I'm more of a, um, too, like I'm more of a 
what works and what doesn't work. Um, so with religion, is this bringing me the benefits that it claims to be? And how do I know that this is actually working? Um, and so I just haven't found that religion was working out for me at the time. Now I'm reconsidering because um, there are a whole bunch of social benefits to it. Um, don't have proof for God, unfortunately. Um, but those other ones, they they do make a difference. So I haven't been able to empathize with Descartes, but the fact that you were, um, that makes me happy and that you were able to come out of that with a whole philosophy and that you were able to construct a rational philosophy out of that. I, that just seems like too much work to me. Yeah, well, it's not it's not complete and I don't always do the work. Like sometimes I, I, uh, I don't know, I... I um, I, I slag off that work. I think it's interesting how I bet there, uh, what, sure. what, what are you so mad about? You can't have more treats. I'm sorry. What? Come here. She has water. She has food. I, I, I've never heard her like this. Um, I'm going to try to pet her. Um, Okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pick it up. I, I think it's interesting. I think that your intellectual development in terms of religion, new atheism, Jordan Petersonism, um, not to call you a Jordan Petersonist, um, I think there's a humongous swath uh, of people aged 20 to maybe 38 who have followed that exact intellectual trajectory. To some extent, me among them. Like again, I I would I would not want to call myself a Jordan Petersonist, but I was I was certainly a Sam Harrisist. Um, and when I listened to that Harris Peterson podcast, the first one, which Harris called such a disaster, uh, Harris never really had the same luster. Like uh, Peterson kind of vanquished him, uh, not just for me, but I think for a lot of people. Um, which is not to say again that I'm a Jordan Peterson cultist and everything Jordan Peterson says about right, eating right. an all-meat diet and getting off benzos in a Russian ICU um, is what I think you should do. But but he, he definitely had a profound effect, I think, on both of us and, and I think a whole generation. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, listen, uh, Dr. Matt Strauss, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It definitely went in a direction. Oh, one last question. What are you studying for your PhD? Uh, the philosophy of medicine. So... Um, I think I, we didn't even get into all of the things that upset me about the practice of medicine that I was doing. Another one is, um, the, the death rate for people who bicycle to work is half that of people who don't. Sorry. I, are you fine with continuing going on? Because sure, I, sure. I have nothing, um, after this, but I'm worried about you. I'm, I'm just worried about my dog, who's being such a baby. Uh, can you go outside, please? Go outside. Um, yeah, I, 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 I can keep going. Like I, look, I'm doing a PhD in philosophy. I like to talk about philosophy. There's no... Perfect. No, uh, no way around that. Um, uh, right. So people who bicycle to work are 50% less likely to die. That is such far better medicine than almost any of our medicines. Like, um, that, that's, that's on a level of antibiotics for pneumonia. 
in terms of the ability to save lives. I, I've said I'm, I'm a very skeptical person. I'm, a, I'm doubtful of acupuncture and chiropractic and homeopathy. But that's a rather holistic solution to a whole lot of health problems that we're not adopting all of the time. And Hold on. You didn't mention the benefits of bicycling to work. Oh, a 50% reduction in all-cause mortality. Oh, oh, okay, got you. Wait, wait, hold on. So that means if I bike to work, then I am 50% less likely to die? So there, there is a correlation-causation conundrum in that paper uh, and papers like it that have, that have seen such significant changes. Um, like it could be that people who bicycle are healthier to start. Um, but they do their best, like there, there will never be a randomized experiment of you bicycle right. to work, you take the car. Um, so they statistically perform multivariate regression analyses to try to, to try to correct and to try to find causation among the correlation. We're never a hundred percent sure, but that's what it seems to be. Okay. And I made this mistake with my podcast with Dr. Eddie Lang, all cause mortality means, um, oh, what does it mean? dying of anything so if if okay. if if i statistically um try to e correct two populations and one population uh, uh drives to work and has a uh, a one percent chance of mortality per year over five years whatever that ends up being so something like three or four percent uh the other has a 0.5 percent per year and, and something more like one to two percent and then there's all these other um benefits uh, in terms of happiness and um, relationships and community building and uh, interactions with people. Um, so like I am holistic in that I think it's, there's something really wrong in general. Like obviously people can have disabilities or people can have certain life situations, but if you're a physician who drives a car to work, I think there's something really really wrong with how you think about health. Um, I know that's a broad claim. Like I know so that might be my most contrarian view, but I, I really, I, if, I think if you're not doing something as easy as that um, to cut your rate of risk of death in half, that you're not living up to your values and that this is a, and, and the failure to live up to your values is in like a technical sense immoral. Um, and, uh, that I'm really interested in pushing on that, um, in, in my PhD, that, that like the personal morality thing and, and, and yeah. And how much of what, um, the burnout that I experienced, I, I, I don't, I never counted myself as burnt out, but the distress that I was feeling, how much of that was failure to live up to my values and how much of the pressure on me not to live up to those values was caused by other members of the institution not living up to their values. Um, like, if, if we have a rotten system, to what extent is that just the sum component of its rotten parts? And I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, not saying that I'm perfect and I'm not <clears throat> adopting holier than thou because I, I bike to work or anything is, mm, as small as that. But I, I'm interested in that sort of things philosophically i'm really interested in questions of evidence <clears throat> and mechanism um 
and it, so it just is the case. I could send you a document of, of uh, I don't know how long it got, 15 or 20 things in critical care that we were sure worked to save lives. So hypothermia after cardiac arrest, um, uh, omega-3s for ARDS, uh, activated protein C and, and septic shock. Uh, I could go on. That were proven false in the last, in, in the 15 years since I went to medical school. Um, and then I started, you know, from kind of a Cartesian place of radical doubt being like, wait, how do I know that I'm not the acupuncturist? How do I know that I'm not doing homeopathy? Just because I, I understand a physiology that um, predicts some things in some lab animals. But when I try to predict things in humans, and then somebody does an actual scientific experiment, an RCT, it turns out to be false. Well, what percent of what I, I'm doing and my colleagues are doing all day is going to be disproven tomorrow? And, and how, how do we get around that? And how did we wind up doing that? And unfortunately, profit motive ends up being a big part of it. So I, I was speaking to a friend. I won't tell you what spe- his specialty is. He made $20,000 in 36 hours doing his specialty. Um, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And so it's, it's really hard to imagine that the thing you just made $20,000 in a weekend to do is actually bullshit. Um, and I don't, think there's a, I don't think there's a cure for coming to terms with that outside of uh, philosophical reflection. Well, see, this is something that I'm scared of in my own life. If you're a bad thinker, no. If you're a bad carpenter, your construction will break. If you're a bad engineer, your bridge will fall down. I thought that if you're, you were a bad doctor, your patients would die. Everyone does. <laughs> well, that's not helpful. Well, here, here's something crazy. The standard that you're, he- that you're held to in, in North America, I don't know about in Europe, is the standard of care. So medicine's this extremely conservative profession, and I mean conservative, not creative, um, where if, if I do something and the patient dies... And the family says, you oughtn't have done that. Uh, it caused this person, our loved one, to die. And if it goes to court, which it never has for me, um, the standard that the judge will hold me to is, is that what your colleagues would have done? That's the standard. The standard is not science. The standard is not, did it cause the person to die? That's part of the standard. I'm not a medical legal expert, but my understanding is in order to be found medically legally guilty, um, it has to have caused their death, but it also has to be uh, aberrant compared to what your colleagues would have done. So it, it ends up being, um, in some cases, a pooling of ignorance. Like so long as you're doing the same ignorant thing as everyone else, you, you will never get in trouble for it. And in, in fact... If you find out what the right thing is, but your colleagues wouldn't do it, and the person dies anyway, now you're out on a limb. Um, so these sorts of problems of um, uh, rent-seeking and uh, um, a failure to really get to the bottom of things uh, trouble me a lot 
in medicine. And what what um, systems are there in place uh, to correct these? Like, what would the goody two shoes? What what would be the right thing to do? So first of all, we we are all altruists, right? So we we go to great lengths in medical school admissions to try try to find the nicest, best people who would never never do something that was kind of bullshit just because they make twenty thousand dollars in thirty six hours to do it. Um, interestingly, the system breaks those people down in a lot of ways. And, and, and it turns out there's no good or bad people. Well, this is a Peterson, this is a Petersonism that the, the line between good and evil goes between every person's heart. So if you, if you enter a, uh, a system that has the wrong incentives, you might withstand that for two weeks. You might withstand it for two years, but it takes nine years, um, to become a specialist physician in Canada and they put you through hell in those nine years. Um, I honestly don't think there's another very contrarian opinion. I don't think there's any reason. Well, I'll keep it less contrarian by talking about 15 years ago when I was a medical student, students and residents could be kept at the hospital for 36 hours awake and working. And I don't think there was ever a reason for that. I think it it was ultimately a form of professional hazing. And I, I think I watched it happen. I, I like I felt it uh, affecting my psychology, but I, it would, you know, easier to see the the speck in your brother's eye. I definitely saw people become bitter, angry, money grabbing because they felt like they had suffered so much and the system owed them back. Wow. That's kind of scary. Do you know if they still do that? 36 hours? Yeah. Yeah. Rarely. So some rare programs. Um, but in general, it's banned. Okay. But we still okay. do... Well, 24 hours is still quite common. And, and I, think, I think ultimately unnecessary. 24, 26. I, I, okay, so um, this... I'm getting this from a Sam Harris episode he did with a doctor. She made the claim that if you're going to get rid of these things, then doctors will not be selected for having the stamina necessary to work through situations where there might be an earthquake and you need to work for 36 hours. Okay. I mean, that sounds outlandish, first of all. There, I, 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 I don't know of any physician... Uh, like, no... I have no friend nor a friend of friend who had to work for 36 hours during an earthquake. That's that. Okay. That, uh, you know, okay. What if a sunspot destroys earth or a solar flare destroys earth tomorrow? Like it, 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 it seems kind of along those lines. I think, I, th- I think if you, uh, you can, you can train for nine years to stay up for 36 hours at a time. Once you have control of your schedule, you, you're, you'll, you'll probably stop doing that. And then you'll quickly lose that ability, let's say. Like, okay. I, I think that's the, that's the worst anti-fragile plan I can think of. Right. And, and... So if you're in a situation like that, what I have found is that what I do takes precedence over what I say I believe. And so if I, for example, I'm getting this from a marketing book called Persuasion. He talks about Chinese um, American prisoner prisoners of war in Chinese 
in, in the communist system. Um, so they were the, the Chinese system were the most effective at um, indoctrinating Americans, even more than the North Koreans who would basically torture them until they would change their mind. Um, what the Chinese would do is first they would like say, look, you don't want to say that the American government is bad? That's fine. Why don't you write out a um, an essay which talks about the pros and cons of capitalism? Because you're not you're not betraying your country. You're just looking at it from a rational perspective. So then they would do that. And and then they would keep can start considering communism, things like that. Um, and they also set it up such that you weren't you were disincentivized from talking with your fellow prison camp people about what you were doing. Um, and so by the end of it, they were completely indoctrinating people, prisoners of war, um, using using these techniques, which were completely voluntary. And like I found that in my own life that when I say one thing but do another, I change my mind and I prefer to be consistent with my past actions as opposed to admit that I have done something um, wrong or something that goes against my philosophy. I just change my philosophy, um, which is really scary because you that means you that's all the more reason to stand up and refuse when someone is asking you to do something stupid or something um, immoral or something wrong. It almost certainly does relate um, it, like in terms of hazing. Like if you can get someone like here's the thing. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think the medical system is trying to make people irritable and uh, resentful um, in, in their training. I, I think it, it kind of does. But yeah, I think you could see it like that episode from Persuasion where if you keep people up long enough they become rather less empathetic at four in the morning. And, um, and yeah, you don't want to become someone who's in the habit of being that irritable. Right. And, and so do you, do you have any solutions? Have you found any solutions to this issue in your research so far? Um, uh, no, I, like I would say, I, I, I've, I've, been a philosophy student for three months now so i'm i'm, I'm just taking courses at this point it, like I'm, I'm not addressing my concerns in terms of research um, gotcha. uh i think i think in terms of my experience well it, it's the sort of things we it's the sort of things we talked about where like i think you can teach people to pay attention to their sense of meaning and to be reflective um, and when they find something out to speak out about it and then I think institutions and cultures will change around these issues but I that's a I guess that's more of a belief I have than the result of research that I've done and and with many beliefs I think well sorry with many claims you can try and verify them on the one hand but on the other hand it's also a matter of faith that you have to act it out in the world to see whether it's true or not. So like one that I like to believe in is that Canada is a meritocracy. You can you can see whether it's true or not, um, but it's also an, 
like an impetus for action. If you think that the prime minister is incompetent, then you have a moral obligation to run for office and replace him um, because Canada is a meritocracy and um, his continue, continual existence in that position while you can do a better job um, is, is falsifying your beliefs. So you need to fix the world because of that. Yeah, that's a very Talmudic, like, if not now, when, if not me, who? Um, and it's a very powerful idea. And, uh, and unless merit, uh, yeah, I, 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 I empathize with you because unless merit is who is the handsomest person whose father was the prime minister, it, it, like, it's just, just obviously the case that we don't have the most meritorious prime minister that we could have. Right. Um, so like in that sense, it's hard to hold out that faith that it is indeed, a a meritocracy, but I, it's important to believe it so that you like, it's a, it's a positive feedback loop. Like it won't be a meritocracy unless you believe it, even though it kind of clearly isn't at the moment. Right. Jody Wilson-Raybould should obviously be the prime minister of Canada. I don't, I don't understand why. And we, she's currently a member of parliament. There's, uh, it's a minority parliament. Like surely all of the opposition parties and half the liberal MPs could agree that she would be a better prime minister. So I don't, uh, I don't see why they wouldn't vote her in or Jane, uh, Jane Philpott. I think that's her name. Yeah. So she's a personal hero of mine. She also happens to be my Dean at Queens. Your now. boss. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I like, I won't, uh, for, for the, so as not to sound seem obsequious, I won't I won't say that she should be the prime minister, but she's she's a wonderful and important person um, who, uh, yeah, w- would would definitely be on on the short list uh, if 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 I was asked who the prime minister should be. Right. Okay. And um, so with Man's Search for Meaning, I think you're the second or third person on this podcast to have recommended it. Uh, so, and I actually started rereading it. A month ago but this is probably like the number one book on this podcast that people should who are listening to it should read and reread again the crazy thing i don't want to say it um because he doesn't say it in the book so maybe there's a reason he doesn't want you to know it but we've both read it so in like i think in the epilogue i don't know who wrote it or like some kind of commentary in the edition that i had they just give a little bit more biographical detail about him and when he was like, I think 13 or 15, he co-wrote a paper with Sigmund Freud. Freud didn't know that he was an adolescent. He just like wrote to Sigmund Freud and was like, hey, I want to be a psychiatrist too. And I have all these ideas. And and Freud was like, oh, that's really interesting. We should write a paper about it. And then they did. And it was published. Um, so he's like, he's, Victor Frankl is, by his resume, such a genius to be published co-authoring with Sigmund Freud when you're when you're 15 but he doesn't even mention that in terms of um I don't know building his credentials or whatever like his his experience and his his story speaks for itself but um I I just find that biographical note okay okay well uh I guess we should wrap up then was there anything else you wanted to say no I probably said far too much (laughs) thank you so much for joining me Thanks for having me.